Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at You guys can go ahead and be seated. At this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss our three and five-year-olds, three to five-year-olds to uh, head off to their class. And for those who remembered that it was daylight savings time and was able to make it out this morning, congratulations underneath your seat. You're going to find keys to a new car that we've provided to you. But if you fall asleep, we get it back, all right? So that's, uh, that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, we are in a book uh, of Jonah, and we've been walking through this series. This is the, uh, I believe, sixth week of the series. Um, that we've been walking through, and it's been a great book because I think we see so many similarities between us and Jonah when it comes to God calling us, putting a calling on our lives that sometimes we might give some pushback to or some resentment to, uh, or we just might run the opposite direction. Uh, We might question God's wisdom and timing and whatever it might look like in our lives, and, and obviously, just, we just complain, all right? We just complain about whatever it is that God is doing. And that's exactly what we're going to see here today is kind of the beginning of, of Jonah explaining why he's frustrated with God literally saving people. Like doing the thing that we most want God to do in our city, in our community, is actually redeem and save people. And yet Jonah, a prophet of God, a minister of God, uh, is not having it. He, he's very frustrated with it. And so I, as we look at this and as we dive into this today, what I, what I hope for us is not that we kind of see this as a, I can't believe Jonah would be like this. I, and, I, and I can't believe that people would think this way. But honestly, I, I hope that it awakens us a little bit to see the consistencies of our own hearts and our own minds where we tend to land in the same place as Jonah. We, we might not be as outright and obvious when it comes to resenting what God is doing, uh, but I believe that all of us, to a degree, land in this category when it comes to not participating in what God has called us to do in being ministers of the gospel in our different contexts that we're in. And so as I've been studying this book of Jonah, uh, so many writers and theologians, they've drawn parallels between the book of Jonah and the parable parable of the prodigal son. Uh, Several different theologians, Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal Prophet, marries these two stories together, as well as Anthony Carter's book, Running from Mercy, that I mentioned a few weeks back. And it's arguably one of the most well-known parables. I mean, I think whether you have a church background or not, if you mention the idea of the prodigal son, most of our culture understands and knows the idea of the story of a, of a wayward child who goes and squanders the wealth and spends it on prostitutes and gambling and, and just all the sins of debauchery that are out there. And yet you still have this loving and accepting and uh, this father who is willing to embrace the return of this prodigal son. We, we know to an extent that detail of this story. And it's a beautiful story. It's a story that we celebrate. It's a story that, that kind of warms our heart at this, again, unrelenting love of a wonderful, gracious, merciful father. But at the same time, the parable found in Luke 15, spoken from Jesus 
is also a sad story. It's a sad story because there's another character involved between the father and the prodigal son. There's also the older brother. There, there's the older brother who's just frustrated. He, he, he hates the fact that the father is throwing this celebratory party for this sinful brother of his who has returned home and has received not only just forgiveness from the father, but is receiving all of the father's affection and attention to the point of, of just bestowing upon this sinful brother a party. I mean, just an all-out party. As if he's rewarding him for something. As if he's... he's um, just giving him all the accomplishments as if it's like a graduation party, like he's done something huge and celebratory. And yet this older brother resents the father. And as we see in this story, this is kind of drawing on those things. Some will look at Jonah as both the prodigal son as well as the older brother. As we see in the first couple of chapters, he's just running from God, trying to get as far away from God and his calling as possible to where God brings him back and causes him to repent through him being buried in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. But at the same time, we also see the prodigal son being represented as the Ninevites, as the people who are uh, literally living a debaucherous lifestyle. They are living, as we'll see here in a little bit, a very sinful culture. And as God redeems them and calls them to himself and brings them back, and that's everything that Ransford covered last week in chapter 3, they repent and they turn from their sins and God saves them. We then see Jonah being represented as the older brother. We see Jonah beginning to complain and being frustrated with what God is doing here. So let's look at this. We're going to read it. We're picking it up in John, uh, Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And I'm actually going to... Read verse 10 of chapter 3 just to give you the context of what Jonah is so frustrated about. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah 4 verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? So chapter 4 begins with these words, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now naturally, the question we should ask ourselves is, like, what displeased Jonah? Like, why, why is he so angry? What frustrated him about what the Lord is doing here? And again, the, the answer was found in chapter 3. It was the repentance of Nineveh, coupled with just this gracious relenting of God. And so these two um, categories, these two ideas together are what displeases Jonah and just makes him incredibly angry. And, and the funny thing there is God, was, God used Jonah to bring about this great revival among the people of Nineveh. Like he literally causes Jonah to go into a city and do the very thing Jonah does not want to do and then saves people Jonah does not want God to save 
And so Jonah is at the center of all of this and just frustrated and angry that God would actually do this. And literally is, is in his complaining, is basically yelling at God saying, I knew you would do this, God. Like I knew if I were to go into this town, these people that I don't like, that you'll see why here in a minute, that I don't like, I knew if I were to go there, you would do this. You would be gracious. You would be merciful. You would save them. And that's exactly what God did. And so another question is, is why? Like, why is Jonah so frustrated with the Ninevites? Why is he so hateful towards them that he would rather God destroy them than redeem them and save them? Well, Nineveh was a great city. It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire during this time. The Assyrians at the time of Jonah, they were honestly just known as vicious people. According to scholars, the Assyrians cultivated and earned a reputation as just cruel barbarians. We see this in Isaiah 10, 12 through 15. Assyrian kings would boast of their military might and harsh treatment of those they defeated. I mean, they would literally impale their victims on spiked poles. They would burn the cities down completely, and they would carry off all of the valuable stolen goods within that city to just wreak havoc and just take and take and take. I mean... In our current context right now, they're, they're seen as what Putin's doing. Just taking what's not theirs. Invading what's not theirs. Bombing children's hospitals for the sake of just doing it because they don't have any other care. So when you look at it in the, that kind of lens, you would kind of land a little bit on Jonah's side, right? Like you would kind of be like, yeah, those, those who are wicked deserve destruction. And, and, and up until this point, the Assyrians, I mean, they have just been nothing but a headache to Israel. I mean, just enemies of Israel wanting to constantly try, like barbarians, just take over and destroy it. And literally, as we'll get to later, or if in, in church history, I mean, they take over. They take over. And so when you look at this idea of, of Jonah, it's, it's not really that crazy for him to be so frustrated. But it does begin to reveal a little bit more of his heart and the way he views how God should act and respond. And he doesn't see the full picture of what God's grace is viewed as. Today we would call these Assyrians, these Ninevites, terrorists. A terrorist nation. Terrorizing its neighbors. Jonah and all of Israel wanted the Assyrians destroyed. He wanted them punished. I mean, who in the church cried or was sad when Saddam Hussein was executed? Who in the church lost any sleep when the United States finally conquered and took over Osama bin Laden and cornered him? Dare I say that no one cried when the wicked witch of the East or the wicked witch, the white witch of Narnia finally came to her demise? Like we feel this way because the wicked should be destroyed. Yet we serve a God who sometimes decides not to do that. Sometimes he decides not to destroy those who are wicked. Sometimes God defeats the wicked not by destroying them, but by extending grace to them and thus changing them. Changing them. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. Literally, 
his journey was on the way as an evil and wicked person to literally go door to door, dragging out men, women, and children who put faith in Christ, who were believers, who trusted in Jesus, who were preaching and proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. He would drag them out, beat them, stone them, imprison them, torture them for the sake of what they were believing in. And yet, God didn't destroy him. God didn't kill him in that moment. But I want you to feel a little bit of Jonah's resentment here. Because that was his response to God saving the wicked. He resented God. And I want you to feel this because this is something that we can be numb to. And it slowly eats at us to the point of non-participating in God's call for ministry. To where we still walk and do the steps of Christianity by being a part of a church, being a part of a community group, being a part of classes that we offer and teach, being a part of Bible studies, hanging out with other Christians. And, and, and when we kind of start to view ourselves in the lens of there's the secular, the sinners, and then there's us, we create a subculture of Christianity that then believes that it's us versus them. And we don't realize that we were them and still are them, but by the grace of God, we are also saints. We are, as Martin Luther like saints simultaneous sinners. But when we create that, that, that subculture, that divide, we begin to have, like Jonah, a mindset that maybe God should just give them what they deserve, even though he didn't give us what we deserved. Resentment. This is the first point, just Jonah's resentment. Resentment is the feeling of anger or frustration at a real or perceived wrong or grievance. You see, Jonah's anger and frustration at what God did for the Ninevites, it gave way to his expression of resentment as he spoke to God. I mean, he prayed to God, and, he, and, he was, and it was not a prayer of submission, but rather it was a prayer in which he was seeking to justify himself, his position, his thought, his heart. He was seeking to justify himself, to, to vindicate himself in some way by literally trying to vilify God. Like he's trying in this prayer, he's trying to be able to come and say, God, you did wrong here and I'm right. That, that's what he's attempting to do. In his prayer, he resented Nineveh's repentance. It displeased him. He was not happy with the Ninevites, nor was he happy with God. He, he had hoped that the Ninevites would not repent and that God would destroy them. I think he truly believed that if he would just go to Nineveh and just do what God called him to do, which was to just preach the gospel, that maybe that was enough that God, or that they would reject the gospel and that God could then just send them to hell. I truly believe that's what he was hoping for. And it then displeased him when God actually used the proclamation of the word and they, repent, they repented, and they came to know the Lord, and they gave up all of their evil acts and their ways, as we saw last week, and they began to rejoice. And as the Bible calls us, we, we should rejoice with those who are now rejoicing. And instead, he was resenting those who were rejoicing. He not only resented the repentance of Nineveh, he also resented his calling. 
Jonah said to God, this is why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. This is the reason I fled from the call you had on my life. Jonah knew God might save the people of Nineveh, and he wanted no part of it. He knew this might happen. And apparently he made this objection known to God previously because he said, is this not what I said when I was yet back in my country? So apparently he already had this conversation with the Lord where the Lord's like, hey, Jonah, get up, arise. I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to proclaim the word there. Apparently, Jonah already had a conversation with him. If I go there, you better not save them. You better not redeem them. You know all the awful things that they do. You know all the sin that they're committing. You know all the, like, they literally surround us. They're barbarians. They just take, take, take. If I go there, you're going to save them. Therefore, I don't want to go there. That's essentially what he's saying here. And he's, is this not what I already said when I was in my country? Did I not say this would happen? Did I not say that you would forgive these wicked people? Did I not say that you would restrain your hand from cutting them off from the face of the earth? Did I not say that? God's agenda was not Jonah's agenda. And Jonah wanted no part of God's agenda. Whatever you're planning to do, Lord, not having it. Buying a ticket, heading to Tarshish. Which, for those who weren't in here at that time, where Nineveh is, in the known world, Tarshish is as far as you could possibly get from it. It's literally on the other side of the known world. That's where Jonah's heart's at. That's where his mind is at. That's where I want to go. Again, never mind that the Bible says we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. Jonah did not want to do that. God had to use him or God had used him to bring joy to the hearts of others and yet there was no joy in him like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son Jonah could think only of himself in this moment he resented none of his repentance he resented his own calling by God and consequently he resents God's grace he resents God's grace Jonah remarked I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Like that, that sounds like a good prayer. Right? Like, like that's, that's what I hope we pray. Every time we, we open our mouths and talk to God, that, like I'm hoping we're this theological. I'm hoping that we're looking at God and we're saying, you're a gracious God. You're slow to anger. And you're, you're abounding in steadfast love. And you relent from disaster. But Jonah is saying this snarky. He's saying this out of resentment. Jonah knew what God would do if he preached. He knew God would be gracious and merciful towards sinners because God had been gracious and merciful to him. In other words, Jonah here is resenting God for being God. That's what he's doing. He's resenting God for being God. He hated God's merciful and forgiving character when that mercy and forgiveness were aimed at his enemies. He, he didn't hate it when it was aimed at him or his brothers by blood, his Jewish comrades. But when it goes outside of that, he hates it and he resents it. Jonah's sin here is obvious. He thought he and his people were better than the Ninevites. 
more deserving of God's grace, if you will. He was evaluating other cultures according to preconceptions originating in the standards and customs of his own culture. What he's really guilty at here is ethnocentrism, which is, if you were to, that's just a big umbrella term for coupling in racism, nationalism, elitism, anything that determines I'm better than you. That's what he's sinning in right here and right now. And it's honestly just insanity. This is the second point. Just the the insanity of racism. Like during the early days of slavery in the United States, many slave owners who were so-called Christians did not want preachers and evangelists coming around their plantation and preaching the gospel of grace to their slaves. They they, They would literally keep them from being able to come and do this. Slave owners believed that if their slaves believed the gospel and were saved and baptized, they could no longer hold them in bondage as slaves. The redeemed slaves would now be considered brothers and sisters in Christ. They would be considered equal in eyes. Therefore, the slave owners would rather keep the gospel from the slaves and consequently keep them enslaved rather than rejoice with slaves in the gospel of God's grace and freedom as a result. How dark is that? How dark is that? That economic riches are greater than eternal riches. I mean, that's their view here. That's how they were living their lives. These so-called Christian slave owners refused the opportunity, like Jonah, to rejoice with those who would rejoice in God. They would rather have slaves and go to hell than to have black brothers and sisters to rejoice with on the way to heaven. That's racism, and that's insane. That's exactly what Jonah is doing here. The insanity of racism causes one to just grow numb to it. Jonah's racism, his nationalism here, it was inculcated that he was numb to the insanity of it all. And unfortunately, this is what happens to many of us today. Because of racism... And, and you might be like, I know this is a triggered topic. And you might be like, I'm not racist. How dare you? I'm not a nationalist. How dare you? Is there ever a moment where you're around someone else and you feel uncomfortable? You feel maybe a little unsafe? I just want that to sit for a minute. Because it's in us. Every single one of us. It's in us. It's sin. It's sin. And just like Jonah, we can become numb to it. We fail to remember that we are all guilty before the bar of God. And thus the redemption of anyone should be a source of joy for everyone else redeemed. Instead, we regret God's grace for those not like us. As if it means God no longer likes us, like an older sibling jealous of the attention of a, given to a newborn. Like for God to save someone who's different than us, does that mean he no longer loves us as much? Like that's insane. That's insane. And it sounds crazy because it is. Honestly, this would be like God calling you right now to go and preach to Putin. 
Do you want him to be redeemed? Do you want him to be saved? Or do you want him to be bombed and destroyed and killed? And, and guarantee go to hell? I mean, this is kind of where we have to come to in these terms. That might feel obvious to us, but at the same time, if we're numb to it like Jonah, it's a little less obvious when it's our neighbor next door who's different and makes us a little uncomfortable, makes us even unsafe at times. In the kingdom of God, blessings for one does not mean curses for another. Like for God, there's no partiality. There's no bottom of the well of his grace. The grace of God that abounds for one people group in no way limits or hinders the grace of God's available to others, other people groups. The Bible clearly says that God has from one man made all the nationalities that inhabit the earth. We see that in Acts 17. All of us, every nation, every color created from one man. Though distinct in our cultures and colors, we're the same. We're the same. Another way the Bible says it is that we are all created from dust. Ecclesiastes 3.20. So consequently, in God's eyes, like your lump of dust is not better than my lump of dust. My lump of dust is not better than your lump of dust. This is just true. This is very elementary. All right? That, that song, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. White dust cannot look at black dust and say you are less than. Nor can it say the same thing of red dust, yellow dust, brown dust. All dust needs the cleansing power of God's mercy and grace. Jonah here thought Israelite dust was better than Ninevite dust. And it caused him to resent God. Yet amazingly, this is the good news here, God graciously restrained that's the third point you see Jonah was insolent he was disrespectful he was profane in the face of God and yet God restrained himself like why well like when I look at this story I'm not frustrated that God saves Nineveh I'm frustrated that God allows Jonah to continue in ministry like I'm frustrated with Jonah here like, I'm angry about this aspect of it. He was profane in the face of God, and yet God restrained himself. Why? Well, the same reason for the Ninevites. God is God. And God was going to treat Jonah once again like God treated the Ninevites. With grace. With grace. Yet Jonah didn't realize it. You see, Jonah knew God. He, he knew God's name. He knew God's character. He knew the self-revelation of God and that God would not and could not act contrary to who God is. Like, this was not the God of Jonah's imagination. That's, that's not what he's reciting here. Or even the God of Jonah's liking. He's referencing the God who is the creator God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was the God who redeemed Israel out of Egypt and spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Like he's talking to the God that he knows is the God and is even rightly, literally describing God as gracious and merciful and slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and one who relents from sending disaster. And so even though his heart might not be in line with what he knows theologically, the best thing he can do is just keep reminding himself of who God is and hope that the Holy Spirit does a work in his heart to match the two together. That's the only thing we can hope for in Jonah's case and in our case. Is that we don't imagine God to be something that he's not. But that we rightly understand biblically who God is and who he says he is. And when we're numb to that, pray and just plead for the Lord's grace to come in and step in and bring our affections and our hearts to match what we know. And if you don't know a lot about God, that's where you need to learn. That's where you need to grow in biblical knowledge of who he's self-revealed himself to be. A lot of times people are like, I, just don't, I don't know God. I don't know who he's like. I don't know anything about Jesus. Like he hasn't told me who he is. No, yes, he has. He has told you, all right? This thing right here is the word of God, is inspired by God, breathed out by God, authored by God, over, through, through 40 different people and over 60, or in 66 books, over a span of 2,500 years, that does not contradict itself. God's told us who he is and has revealed to us who he is, not only through a written word, but through literally his son Jesus coming to live a perfect life for 33 years. Like you don't know God, look at Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, look at the word of God that points to Jesus and talks all about Jesus and who he is. Who he's going to be, who he is, who he was. It's all about Jesus. He gives us what we need to know him. And from there gives us what we need through the spirit of God to become alive to him, to abide in him, and to be able to, to have affections that grow in him that match up with what Jonah is saying here. And what I hope to see here as I kind of walk through these four things of his graciousness, his patience, his slow to anger, and his love, what I want you to see here is I'm hoping that this brings your affections up to what you probably already know I'm about to say. I'm going to say things here that you've already heard. You've already heard it. We preach it all the time. Like for me to say God is gracious, you're like, yeah, you say that every Sunday. That God is loving. Yeah, you say that every Sunday. That God is patient. Yeah, every Sunday. That God's merciful. We know that. But do we know it? Has it, has it intermingled themselves together to where it produces fruit? Like that's, that's one, of the, one of the favorite terms in knowing is the intimate one that's used for Adam and Eve. Where it's like Adam and Eve knew each other and they bore Seth. Like you can know one another in a way where it's like, yeah, they, they love tacos this is their favorite movie. Like you can know Facebook facts about somebody. But to know someone that produces a child is a little different. 
What we're praying for is that God unites the ideas of knowing him and being united to him that produces affections that love and are endearing and are, are craving and hungering and thirsting for more of him, for more of him. That's what motivates us to call out to God, I want to serve wherever you want me to serve. I want to talk to whoever you want me to talk to. I want to do whatever it is that you want me to do. I want to give whatever it is that you want me to give. I want to do those things because I have so understood what you have done for me. It frees me to be able to give all of myself back to you. When those two things are not married together, we will tend to naturally bend like Jonah and run from what God is ultimately doing. That's the nature in us. And so my prayer is that, again, we are echoing the same thing that Jonah is saying here. Because what Jonah is saying here is actually not coming from his own just understanding. This is coming from what he knows biblically. He's just quoting scripture here. This same phrase that the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is coming from Exodus 34, 6, Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalm 86, 15, Psalm 103, verse 8, Joel 2, verse 13. And as I'll read here, Psalm 145, 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. This is the way that basically God told the people, when you describe me, this is how I want you to describe me. This is how I want people to know me. This is how I want people to experience me. Honestly, this is the reason why I created everything. Was so that everything would know that a creator is gracious. For God to be gracious means that he's good. God is good. Being good, God desires good for his creation. He desires good for you. Regardless of your circumstances, he desires good for you. Like that's his heartbeat. is for you to literally be pleased and enjoy God forever. Like that's what God wants for you. He wants you to experience goodness. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119 verse 68. You are good and you do what is good. Good is God's overall disposition. God is never not good. This is why we say God is good all the time and. Exactly. It doesn't matter what church denomination or affiliation you've ever been a part of. They all say the same thing. God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Now, being from a Baptist background, they said it a lot louder than y'all just did, but but it's true. The great promise of one of the most beloved verses in the Bible says that God delights to work all things out for the what? Good of those who love him or called according to his purpose. He called Jonah to go to the Ninevites and preach the gospel to them. And even that was for Jonah's Good. Jonah didn't see it that way. And a lot of times we don't see it that way. We don't see what he's doing and where he's calling us and the circumstances he puts in our lives. We might not see it as good. We're like, well, this isn't good. This doesn't feel good. This doesn't taste good. This isn't 
This isn't great. This isn't working out for me. And yet God in his infinite knowledge and wisdom knows that whatever it is that he's placing us in and the season he's walking us through, it's good. It's good. Second thing is God is merciful here. The God is merciful means that God delights to look beyond our faults and supply our needs. To look beyond our faults and supply our needs. It's not that he doesn't see our faults and failures. He does. He sees every fault and failure that you have. But unlike most people we know, he's willing to see more than our faults. More important, he sees our need. He sees our need for forgiveness, our need for grace, our need for him. That's mercy. That's mercy. Seeing what you deserve and not giving it to you, but instead giving you what you need, that's mercy. God's merciful. The Bible calls this forbearance. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Listen to this. Just let this, let this pour over you. But now the righteousness, the perfection, the goodness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Basically right there is just saying Jesus has shown up. All of the Bible has been talking about Jesus. Jesus is being manifested here. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's here. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All right? Every single person is sinful. No one, there's no distinction. There's no one people group has sinned less than this people group, or this individual has sinned less than this one, or this spouse has sinned less than this spouse. No distinction. All have sinned. All have missed the mark. You're all wicked. Okay? You're welcome. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, good news, are justified, made right, made holy by his grace as a gift through the redemption, that is the purchase that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a substitution in your place, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. This was to show God's goodness to you. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What that basically means is that God's mercy is every time you sinned, well, what's the wages of sin? Romans 6.23, what is it? Death. Every time you sinned, God would be holy, right, good, and just to just kill you. To just kill you. But mercy is him withholding that. Because in his divine forbearance, in his, as we'll see next, his patience, he was willing to not kill you. And especially for those in the Old Testament, the Ninevites, he was willing to be patient and merciful and not kill them because he knew, I'm waiting for Jesus. I'm waiting for Jesus. So I'm not going to kill Adam and Eve when he told him that he would. I'm not going to kill them because I'm waiting for Jesus. I'm not going to kill the barbarians here, the Assyrians, because I'm waiting for Jesus. And him, him, God, outside of time, being able to look ahead and being able to see the cross of Jesus Christ in that moment vindicates sin for everyone who repents, for everyone who believes, for everyone who trusts. 
And therefore, for something that has not yet happened, he's able to not sweep their sin under the rug, but actually deal with their sin and forgive them because he's nailing it to the cross in the future. That's mercy. God is merciful. And Jonah knows this. He knows this and he's preaching and proclaiming this. And because of that, again, the third one here, God is patient. It reveals the fact that God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger and he's self-controlled. He's long-suffering. Nahum 1.3 says, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. You see, God is all power and yet he's patient. Most of the time, we are patient because we don't have any choice but to be patient. Right? Like most of us, if you're right now walking through a difficult season that's, that's requiring you to be patient, if you had all power, you would just grant yourself what you want. Would you not? You would not be patient if you had all power. Yet God, in His divine forbearance and in His all power, is still patient. He's patient. He's patient even in the sense that when you think about the New Testament and the writers of it, I mean, they said they're in the last days. That was 2,000 years ago. I mean, God is patient in coming to restore all things. Like, that's amazing to me. They can, like... They were going around, hey, uh, whatever you're doing, just stop doing it. Like, leave your, like, consider your father and mother, your sister and brothers, just cut off. Like, almost hate them because we're so urgent right now about getting the gospel out because we're in the last days, guys. We're in the last days. Like, if someone, like, I feel like we're going to get to heaven and they're going to be like, you're 2,000 years behind us? God, why were we so urgent? <laughs> Why did you like force us to go out and do all these things if you were going to be that patient? But again, that's just the goodness of God. In his, in his wisdom and in his knowing of everyone who's going to be born in every single generation, that he's like, I've got people still. I've got people still. I'm going to save those people. And so I'm going to be patient and still allow sin and destruction and war, and disease, and sickness. I'm going to allow all these things to continue to happen and let sin have its leash because I still have people that I'm going to redeem and that I'm going to save. And even some of those people, you're not going to like it. But I'm still going to do that. Psalm 78, 38 puts it this way, Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often, and did not stir up all his wrath. I, I just love it. Like it doesn't mean that God doesn't get angry. He does get angry at times. But in his anger, he restrains him. Like he, he never gets so angry that later he has to apologize for what he said. Like that might ring a bell for some of us with, with spouses in this room. He restrains his anger because he's good and he's patient and he's merciful. And the last one is his abounding and steadfast love. You see, all Jonah did was charge God with being God. And in doing so, he revealed the darkness of his own heart. 
He did not falsely accuse God. He disdained God for who God is. He showed contempt for God. He hated God's compassion. At the end of the day, he hated God's love. And he regretted God's mercy. But let's not be too quick to condemn Jonah here. We must admit that these same sentiments are too often found in you and me. Jonah forgot that God was gracious to him. Jonah forgot that God was kind to him. Jonah forgot that God was merciful and patient with him. Jonah forgot that God loves him. Period. And honestly, I think that's where we fall at times when we grow numb to the ministry that God has called us to. And and when I say that, I'm literally referring to just the advancement of the gospel. That's the purpose. Again, church is not to be created as a subculture for us to hang out with other people who don't cuss that often or don't get drunk that often. Like they're they're just they're just good people to raise their kids around. Like that's not what the church is created to be. The church is created to be the vehicle and agent for moving the gospel to the sinners who need the love and redemption and forgiveness of God, just like you used to be. Like I didn't grow up in the church. It took a fifth grader next door who knew and understood the gospel and the love of God for him as a sinner who never cleaned his room. Like that's like in his mind, he's like, I don't ever clean my room. That's deserving of hell. My parents told me that. And then they shared Jesus with me. And now I kind of want to clean my room. Like this was him like sharing the gospel with me, a seventh grader next door. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I do a lot worse than not cleaning my room. And I was like, I, I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. And then I remember like immediately walking into the kitchen and going to my mom. I think she was like, I think she was microwaving bologna at the time. I'm from Tennessee, okay? Just, and I remember walking up to her and I, was, I just remember, Mom, I am sorry. I know, I now know I have been a difficult child. And my mom will tell you that. Like, I remember when Ezra was born and he was difficult for us. Mom was like, he's payback. He's payback. Because you were awful. <laughs> she was like, if you would have been the firstborn, you would have been an only child. Because we can't do this again. She's, she's loving. She's great. But, but I understood sin. And I went to my mom and I was like, I'm sorry. And then I was like sharing the gospel with her. Like, I was like, hey, I just met Jesus. He's amazing. He just forgave me of everything. Like, that's awesome. I want you to know this. And then later, like through that, like just the gospel kept working in our family. We all got baptized literally the same day. Mom, dad, me and my brother baptized the same day. January 26, 2002 was when we got baptized. That's when the church grew. And then just continued to advance as, as we go and preach and proclaim the gospel. Guess what? That's not just for myself and Josh and Ransford. That's not just for those who serve on our leadership team who are helping to manage and oversee and lead our ministries. It's not just for those who, who I don't know if you, I don't know where you complete the district equip. We are all, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been called by God 
to go and make disciples of all nations. That's why the district church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. It does not exist for you to have a sub-Christian culture. Period. If that were the case, there's so many other churches with a lot more amenities if you want to focus on it being a country club. We don't have a lot of amenities here, if you've noticed. Signs fall down when you walk in. But what we are called to do is preach and proclaim the gospel. And when we don't, we need to ask ourselves the same question God asked Jonah. Like, do you do well to be angry? Another way to ask, do you do, do, you do well to complain? Do, do you do well to be indifferent about the gospel? Do, is it going well for you to just live life your way? How you want, how you desire, how you think is best. Because I, I think for most of us, we would, we would at least for, with some head knowledge be able to say, you know, when I do submit myself to the Lord and I do walk in step with His Spirit and I do walk through what it looks like to be a faithful believer who's abiding in Christ, who's, who's invested in God's Word, who's devoted to, to communicating with God in prayer, who's involved in belonging with community that is spurring me on to love and good deeds. That goes well for me. It's when I punt those things that I'll get to that eventually. We're just in a busy season right now. You know, we just don't have the time and capacity right now. We don't have the bandwidth. We love that one. I just, in my, I just have so much going on in my life right now that maybe next season I'll dive in a little deeper on some of these spiritual disciplines of abiding in Christ. Maybe I'll then take it seriously. Maybe when my kids get a little bit older and they start to understand a little bit better, maybe then I'll start taking serious because they're taking notes on how I respond to the Lord. Whether or not I pray, whether or not I read his word, whether or not I share the gospel, maybe I'll then take it serious. But it's for them, not me. I'll tell you what, you can't fool a child. You can't fool a child. It, it, it's imprinted on them literally when they come out of the womb. That's not only spiritual, that's psychological. I remember they told me that like before Ezra was born. They are like, yeah, did you know that even in the womb, like children have this ability to be imprinted upon so that you're literally discipling them with the culture and environment that's around them. They can see it on your face. They see how you communicate with husband and wife, like it's mommy and daddy. They see like the friends, like it's, it's nature and nurture. It's the nurture component of it. And I was like, that terrifies me. And so I joke that we have a therapy jar that I'm just putting dollars in constantly for when they get older and they need it. God loves us. And he wants us to be well. Do you do well to be angry? He asked Jonah. We'll get to Jonah's response next week as he kind of sets up shop in his complaining. 
because uh, he, he at this moment doesn't, doesn't repent. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't get there quite yet. But for us, it is an opportunity. It is an opportunity for us to look again at the grace of God despite the depths of your sin. To be able to see the goodness of God in your life and all the blessings he, he delights to graciously bestow on you. Though you don't deserve any of them. Then honestly ask yourself, do I really have reason to complain when I look at all the goodness and graciousness of God towards me? I consider the church and the community of the saints that God has placed you in. God's granted you the privilege of being named among his people. Consider the privilege of singing songs of praise and worship, of hearing God's word read and preached, of prayers prayed over you. Consider that despite your sin and disobedience, God has welcomed you into the place where he is pleased to dwell like the more you consider what God has done for you it begins to change your affections again look at Jesus upon the cross despised and rejected wounded and bruised the sinless son of God taking the wrath you and I deserve purchasing our redemption with the price of his precious blood and ask yourself the question is it right for me to be angry is it right for me to complain is it right for me to be indifferent now hear me for a minute i'm not saying you can't ever be angry or frustrated i'm not saying that or maybe even confused at what god is orchestrating and working out in your life i was for sure not okay when hearing about kelsey's diagnosis I was not okay about that. And I want you to hear it's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay there. It's not okay to stay there. That when you stay there is when that resentment builds. That's when the resentment builds. Church, It's not okay to stay in the wallow in our frustration and complaining. And we'll see that next week with Jonah. But for now, instead of complaining, let's be thankful. Let's be thankful for what God's done for us, for his goodness to us, his graciousness, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his patience that is slow to anger, and his unending steadfast love that is always unrelenting towards us all because of the work of Jesus finished on the cross. Like if you ever feel like you want to just complain to the Lord for him doing something that he does, man, just go to the cross. Just look at the cross. It humbles you real quick. That that was what you deserved. And yet he took it upon himself to stand in your place. So as we come to this time of communion, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. And for you today, again, you've got the knowledge in your mind of who God is. You know he's gracious. You know he's merciful. You know he's patient. You know he's steadfast in love. But maybe for it to get to your heart today, look at how that plays itself out at the cross. Because Jesus does not exert this knowledge over us in an authoritarian way 
He does it in the humble way of saying, I'm, I so love you that I don't want you to experience sin and shame and guilt and pain and death. I don't want you to experience that. So I'm going to take it upon myself so that you get to experience the complete opposite. Joy and life and abundance and love and eternal relationship with him that we enjoy way more than anything you possibly can enjoy here on earth. And that's what we celebrate when we come to this time, that, that this is exactly what God did in order to redeem you, to save you, to save you. So I'm going to pray for our communion. If you don't have the elements, you can go back to the table and grab them. But I'm going to pray for our communion and that we would just come to the Lord at the feet of the cross and just thank him, thank him. I mean, gratitude is just the fuel that just continues to stir up joy in our lives. So let's pray. Father, we ask right now that you would fill our hearts with the knowledge of what our minds know about your goodness and your grace to us. That you are loving and that you are kind and that you have moved towards us just like you have with Jonah and these Ninevites. That you've moved towards us and you have not destroyed us, but you've restrained your anger and your wrath because, because you poured it out on Jesus at the cross. And you were satisfied with his sacrifice. And because you were satisfied with his sacrifice and with his bloodshed and the breaking of his body, we do not have to shed our bloods and we do, we do not have to break our bodies. But rather we get to participate with him by having our sin put to death and three days later resurrected to a new life. A new life of joy in Christ alone and nothing else. We thank you, Lord. We remember that now as we partake of communion together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at